0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney and you know both Eric and I have spent many a year, probably too many years for either of us to, to, to want to admit to, hanging around boxing and we've met all kinds of different people who are interested in boxing and different scenarios but I don't know – I know that I certainly – I'm pretty sure that I can't beat this. I don't know, Eric, if you saw this tweet from our friend and colleague Steve Farherd, uh from January 14th. But this is kind of – it's just pretty amazing. Um, uh, Steve's, this is Steve's tweet. From the It's a Tiny World Department, cable repairman just came to fix my TV. Turns out he not only was once a pro fighter, but he challenged Costa Zoo for a world title. Leonardo Mas. Um, so I've had, like I said, all kinds of like odd encounters and odd places with boxing fans, maybe occasionally boxers. I, I don't think any of like my utility people <laughs> have ever actually been former world title challenge. You ever had any kind of experience like that?
1: Oh, yeah. No, actually, uh, oh, I'm, I'm surprised that, uh, that that this seems so <laughs> odd to you. This happens all the time to me. Uh, there, there was that time uh, my dishwasher was on the fritz and uh, Bone Crusher Smith showed up at my door to fix it. And uh, we needed an exterminator once, had a mouse problem and who should show up but Sven Ottke? So, yeah, you know, it, it happens all the time. I'm, uh, I'm surprised Steve even tweeted about it. It's pretty much an, an everyday occurrence for most of us boxing journalists.
0: Right, really? I can't imagine Fenocchio being a good exterminator. I mean, he couldn't knock out anything, could he? <laughs> well, the, the mice, the mice are small. I mean, you don't need <laughs> a lot up. of power to take stay out stay a mouse. Up. Still,
1: <laughs> poor Anthony Mundine listening to this. Uh, yes, yes, or
0: yes, about we we haven't ragged on Anthony Mundine for weeks.
1: It, it's been it's been a yeah a, a little while. So let's note that the guy who we're saying couldn't possibly hurt a small mouse did knock get Anthony Mundine cold.
0: Ah <laughs> uh, yes, good times. Ah well, there you go. Yeah, interesting interesting choice of uh, people to to show up. But who knew? <laughs> there you go. Who knew? So um, but anyway, uh, we are early in our. Second year of Showtime boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, one thing we didn't do a whole lot of last year was, um, oddly, actually interview main event Showtime fighters on the week of their fights. But as proof that 2020 will be even better than 2019, we've started to flex our muscles and make demands. And this week we will be previewing a Saturday's Showtime tripleheader from Barclays Center in Brooklyn, headlined by Danny Garcia versus Ivan Redcatch, and we will be interviewing... The very same Danny Garcia who headlines that card. We double-checked. It is the same Danny (laughs) Garcia. Not just some random guy with the name Danny Garcia. We do our research here. Um, That's not all. We will look at the big shock in Philadelphia on Saturday night. Jason Rosario stopping Julian J. Rock Williams in the fifth round of a junior middleweight title fight. But we start the show with Friday's Showbox card, the historic 250th episode in the acclaim series. That's right, fights 584, 585,
1: and 586 in Showbox history are complete. And uh, we've checked with Gordon Hall. He ranks them number 113, number 206, and (laughs) number 389 in his updated rankings. Uh, In the main event, the fight that comes in uh, lowest among those at number 389, Uh, not a particularly thrilling affair. Uh, Super middleweight Vladimir Shishkin ran his record to 10-0 with a near-shutout win over Ulysses Sierra over 10 rounds. Scores were 99-91 twice and 100-90. As with his first defeat, Sierra drops to 15-1-2. But in lasting the distance, he ended a four-fight knockout streak for Shishkin. And Kieran and I both predicted the Russian would extend that streak to five. Uh, I picked a seventh-round KO, and Kieran picked KO-10. And Kieran came closer. Uh, Shishkin really built momentum in the second half of the fight. And there were moments in round 10 where it looked like a stoppage from referee Adam Pollack was possible, but it wasn't to be. Kieran, did you see anything new and notable from Shishkin in this fight as compared to his previous fight on Showtime? And would you say this was a positive step overall, or does the somewhat dull nature of the fight hurt him more than it helps?
0: um so it certainly wasn't a fight to move shiskin forward at least not in terms of perception or or his desire to to get bigger and better fights immediately but it is actually probably the kind of fight that helps him going forward um you know like you said for all his amateur experience his record is now just 10 and oh he's just got the 10 pro fights um and especially early in the career box is going to have knights and opponents like this um he was lively enough shiskin his footwork was fine he was moving in and out pretty well he was on his toes throughout his energy levels were high Uh, you know as you mentioned with the scorecards there he won just about every round Um, had it been a 12 rounder he might well have scored the stoppage because uh, he looked like he was fresh at the end and as you were mentioning there Sierra was certainly starting to fade a bit right at the end there but but there was something missing Um, there was you know less fluidity to his offense he was relying more on his power punches and and his left hand really wasn't a factor compared to what we've seen him before Um, and his jab as a consequence wasn't really much of a factor either and And so, you know, spotting that, the aforementioned and always perceptive Steve Farhood uh, actually wondered aloud during the broadcast whether Shiskin's left hand or left arm was injured in some way. And and indeed it was. Shiskin saying after he'd apparently injured his left bicep and elbow um, is a quote from him afterwards. It was a much tougher fight than I thought it would be because I fought with one hand for most of the fight. He said, I was surprised he could take my punches, but I couldn't move his hand out of the way with the left to hit him with the right. Uh, that affected me a lot because I use that a lot. Um, so that sort of helps explain why maybe Schiskin didn't look quite as, as as on point as we've seen before. And, and then you add to that the fact that, you know, Sierra's a durable guy. Like I said last week, you don't get to go to four Sergei Kovalev camps or an Andre Ward camp if you can't at least handle yourself in there, if, if you can't at least be durable. Um, and that's kind of what he looked like to me, Sierra, like a durable guy with a little bit of a sparring partner's mentality, doing enough to hang tough, even if he didn't really have enough to really put himself out there to win. Um, look, Two fights ago, Sojohan Ugashev went the distance against Michael Fox and he wondered if the hype was justified. Um, and I think we've already seen enough of Shiskin on Showbox and elsewhere to know that he is legit. Um, We just don't know enough about how high a ceiling can be. I just think this was one of those nights where he wasn't in the best possible health. His opponent was durable and tough and awkward. He got a dominating win. Didn't look spectacular. Learned a few things. On to the next one, I think. But look, as I just mentioned a couple of fights ago, Sojohan, descendant of Tamerlane, Arigashev, went the distance. Um, He didn't. On Friday night, uh, as he needed just 92 seconds to knock out Adrian Diamante Estrella. Uh, I like the fact that beforehand, uh, Raul Marquez was pointing out that he's Diamante, not El Diamante. <laughs> right, like, right. He's big difference. Just a, he's just a common garden, you know, ordinary dime to the dozen Diamante. And I'm sure we would never have seen El Diamante uh, buckled over like that. Uh, it was A single punch that did it, vicious left hook to the liver. Estrella went down in agony. Uh, and couldn't beat the count. I mean, look, boxers are inhumanly tough people, and they are capable of withstanding pain and suffering of the kind us mortals certainly wouldn't dream of enduring. Uh, We used to see them discombobulated with legs that don't obey them or a gaze that's no longer focused, but we very rarely see them in utter, like, twitching, unadulterated pain like that. So it's quite something, I thought, to see Estrella writhing in agony after that shot. Um, So we asked Gordon Hall last week about Ruben Villa, um, and whether he might be graduating from Showbox soon, and I think you know we could equally not ask him the question. Could we not about Ergashev? Uh, do you think he's ready to start fighting real contenders at 140 pounds?
1: Uh, he's not not ready, uh, but the, <laughs> that
0: that doesn't mean it would be the correct
1: course of action. Um, right. He he could definitely still use some rounds, some experience, some exposure to different styles. That said, how could you not be impressed with what you saw on Friday night? That was one of the sickest liver shots you'll ever see. Uh, you just talked about the, that, that look of agony. I, I can't think of many examples of fighters going down in more demonstrable pain right. than Estrella did. Um, but, you know, Ergoshev now 18-0. and 0, He's 28 years old. He's in that range where you don't want to wait too long, but... Right. You don't need to rush yet. I say, you know, let the Josh Taylors and Jose Ramirez's sort things out at 140 for another year or so, and then make your move. Hmm. Um, that's that's kind of how I would look at things with him. You're uh, you're not in a rush, but, uh, you know, 28, you can't wait too long either. So uh, keep biding your time, making incremental steps, and, and then you'll be ready soon uh, for the big step up. And by the way, uh, because, as we've established, I, I like to point out all the important stuff, like ring walk dances and ropes made of needs uh i want to give a shout out to uh mark Taffet, Ergashev's co-manager for tweeting with the hashtag showtime s-h-o-h-t-i-m-e ah. on friday and that's that's just smart branding there and, ah. and, and a pun david greisman would be proud of yeah yeah um <laughs> uh, moving on to the opening bout what Steve Farhood, we're, we're quoting him a lot tonight, yep. uh, what Steve Farhood called a highly competitive one-sided fight uh, at Bantamweight, Detroit's Jericho O'Quinn won seven rounds out of eight on all three scorecards against a game, Oscar Vasquez, a game until the eighth round anyway, when he had slowed down and was holding quite a bit, just trying to last the distance at that point. Vasquez was a real pain in the butt early in the fight, uh, but O'Quinn was clearly a level above talent-wise, and it seemed to me the fight got a lot easier when he started using his jab in the second half. For me, the jury's still out on how to feel about O'Quinn as a prospect. How about you?
0: Yeah, um, first of all, uh, full disclosure, I should point out um, that Aquin is managed by a friend of mine, Mike Leonardi, which I actually mm-hmm. hadn't appreciated last week when we did did the preview. But okay. so I should always point that out as full disclosure. But um, yes, I agree with you. I, look, it's all I've seen of him. Uh, O'Quinn and he obviously comes, you know, highly regarded and highly thought of, as Gordon indicated when we spoke with him last week. But yeah, I think I think he summed it up quite well there. Uh, O'Quinn was clearly the one with the higher talent level and the higher ceiling. Um and Vasquez was basically being a tough guy. But there were times especially like you said in the first half when O'Quinn was helping him have success in doing that. Um he, he was working well to the body, O'Quinn, but I don't know if it was because of that and leaving his hands down too low, or the fact that he's being a bit more relentlessly aggressive than he need to be or maybe he just hasn't tightened up that part of his game yet but he was getting hit too much I thought especially in the first half of the fight um you know the punches that he was getting hit with weren't enough to bother him but Um, the the guy's ringside sort of noted that a better guy with a better punch hitting him that often might make some difference. Um, You know, and it's to the point that like halfway through the fight, the actual punch stats in terms of punches landed were basically indistinguishable. Um, Although the quality of a Rico's, uh, of a Quinn's was um, clearly uh, higher. So um, yeah, look, I I saw enough to make me want to see more. Uh, He doesn't immediately strike me as a blue chipper, but like I said, that's all I've seen of him. A bit premature, clearly got some talent there. Quite happy to see uh, more of him.
1: Yeah, um, and and my favorite moment of of this fight, uh, and the fight was good, there were plenty of entertaining moments, but my favorite was between round seven and eight, Vasquez said something in Spanish in his corner, and Raul Marquez, having been asked by Barry to translate, said, "Uh uh-oh, you don't want to know. (laughs) <laughs> now i need to know one of one of our bilingual listeners please let me know what uh, what vasquez said or maybe i can shoot raul a message and exactly. ask him but uh, exactly. yeah curious what he said that we don't want to know uh moving on to the other fights this weekend uh kieran teased this at, at the top of the show uh we're, we're less than three weeks into january and we already have an upset-of-the-year contender. On Fox from the Leocorris Center in Philadelphia, Jason Rosario stopped Julian J. Rock Williams in the fifth round. He hurt Williams with a left hand that had him reeling, backed him into a corner, and then landed a beautiful uppercut to snap his head back and send Williams staggering sideways along the ropes and prompt referee Benji Estevez to step in and halt the contest at 137 of the round. Shortly after it ended, I tweeted... I will have something to say about the stoppage on the pod, and I will, Uh, but I'll let you weigh in first, Kieran. Uh, What did you think of the stoppage, and give me your assessment of how Rosario pulled off the upset.
0: I was fine with the stoppage. I mean, I I can understand if, if someone might think it was a smidgen early, given what was at stake, but Williams looked to me to not just be hurt, but falling apart. Um, you know, the way Rosario planted that uppercut in the corner also told you that he was not going to be one of those guys who just flailed away and, and and punched himself out. Um, You know, there were 90 seconds still to go in the round. Williams himself didn't complain uh, afterwards. And what I suspect what really sort of told Benji to like, think about being ready to stop it was after he, after Rosario had hurt Williams and they kind of got tangled up there as Rosario was, was looking for the finish and Rosario ended up kind of like half, basically throwing Williams down to the canvas J-Rock took a long time to right. get up from that. And that sort of suggested that, A, he was hurt and didn't know quite where he was, and also that he was tired, um, you know? So that that made it clear he was sort of, yeah, exhausted or, or discombobulated or both. So before I say any more... You obviously want to step in. Is this the Raskin sadistometer (laughs) high or what's going on
1: here? Uh, It's definitely registering a little bit on the sadistometer. Um, The way that you phrased it, a smidgen early, given what was at stake as a a position you could understand. That's kind of where I am. Look, I'm not going to blast Benji Estevez here. Um, By no means do I think this was a horrible stoppage and a travesty. I, I just didn't love it. I thought it was a little premature, given the stakes and Williams' heart. Um, and, and let me back up first to, to the non-knockdown call uh, that you just talked about. That you're, you're absolutely right that Williams was very slow to get up, and you could tell right then that he was hurting. But I think he was done a mild disservice by Estevez not calling a knockdown. Ah. Um, uh-huh. You know, right. and, and to me, those situations where a guy gets hurt and he's trying to hold on and he mm. eventually goes down without a punch sending him down, but more because he, he's trying to tackle the other guy and misses, right. I think that should usually be a knockdown. It was caused by a punch just kind of on a delay that it, he was trying to hold and couldn't and went down, but it was certainly punches that hurt him. So I think with a knockdown call and an eight count and then Estevez asking him to come to him, et cetera. Williams gets maybe five more seconds of recovery time that would have been very valuable. Um, And then as far as the stoppage, yeah, the uppercut was fantastic. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. his eyes did roll back in his head for a moment there. Um, But he he was close to going down. And I just felt in the moment, as a guy who traded bombs with Jared Hurd for 12 rounds and kept battling, he deserved a tiny bit more rope. Uh, You know, I'd say he deserved one or two more punches to maybe go down and, and get another mm. eight count and, and see mm. how he does. So I thought the stoppage was just a punch or two on the quick side for for this fighter and this fight. And, you know, I think of how many classic performances in history came after a guy got dropped and hurt approximately this badly and was given a chance to recover. I don't think he warranted a lot more rope. I right. think he warranted a little more. And I also thought, you know, it seemed to me like he was expressing disbelief at the stoppage you could see him mouth the word wow it did, yeah when the fight but was, called off. That was
0: yeah in relation it was at the stoppage or holy crap what just happened to me right or, right or, that's yeah. that's what,
1: yeah i wasn't quite sure but seemed to me like he was saying wow i can't believe you stopped it but that's open to interpretation and right. he certainly didn't complain afterwards in the interview which may have just been him exactly. being a, a gracious loser yeah. um but you know it seemed to me uh, he may, he might not have been cool with the stoppage. Uh, he, uh, maybe he thought he deserved a little m- more opportunity to see if he could get through it. Uh, but I certainly felt that way. Uh, so there you go. Sadistic Raskin is back.
0: Not super sadistic, actually. That's right. like, you know, that's by by <laughs> Sadisto Raskin standards, that's that's nothing really. Um, you know, I I wonder if it's one of those things that, you know benji was looking not just at the guy going down but at the overall body language in the ring and and and, you know you sort of asked how rosario did it and you know i think that a he he's a damn fine fighter and he went in there you know look looking to throw bombs and do damage and even though williams landed quite well i thought in both especially in the first and third rounds rosario did as well in the second and fourth and you know his punches i think landed with greater authority and just greater menace Uh, i i thought it was even through four rounds one of the judges did too the other two had had rosario up 39 37 but but the the key point clearly was when that one right hand landed that kind of opened up a little bit of a cut on the eyelid there of, of Williams and swelled it up a little bit. It didn't look like the worst cut in the world, but you know, that's easy for me to say. And it was clearly bothering Williams. And and it felt as if watching it that, you know, it wasn't, and he said, you know, it affected his vision a little bit. But, it, you know, and we'll talk to Stephen Breadman Edwards, his trainer, about this in a couple of weeks when next he's on the show and we'll get the skinny on it. But it looked to me as if it wasn't just like that the cut was bothering him, but something like the fact that he was cut was bo- just suddenly started to affect him psychologically. And it mm-hmm. looked to me like, you know, and you could hear Breadman trying to calm him down in the corner. But um, we got like this one shot of him, I think, but as he was about to come out for the fourth round, maybe it was for the fifth round. We got we got a a good like close up of his face, and I was thinking to myself, "Damn, dude, calm down." His face just looks stressed, going out, uh, um, you know, for the for that next round. And when you're stressed like that for whatever reason, whether you've got doubt in your head or whatever, that's going to eat up your energy. That's going to affect your performance, and that would explain why he was looking exhausted slash discombobulated all at the same time because he was pro- he was somewhat doing that to himself you know Breadman obviously not quite able to get him to calm down um you know that i think clearly contributed to what happened in there
1: yeah and, and look it's it's a great win for rosario uh, whatever wh- whether a, p- a punch or two too quick on the stoppage or, or right. not tremendous win for him and uh, uh you know Devastating loss for, for J-Rock Williams. He, he was all set for a matchup with Jermell Charlo, which is now presumably up in smoke. Uh, so, so what happens next, Kieran? Does Rosario fight Charlo instead, or does Williams exercise his rematch clause? And, you know, who, who do you see as the top dog at 154 right now, and... Uh, who do you think will be at, say, the end of 2020?
0: Well, again, you know, when the smoke's cleared in a couple of weeks, well, I'm sure we'll have uh, Stephen Edwards on the show and he'll be able to give us a bit more of a sense of, of where they're going after everything's calmed down. But um, look, on the back of this performance, it was such a good performance by uh, by Rosario. I mean, this is exactly when you want to see Charlo Rosario, isn't it? Right now. It's like uh, uh, they, they have a bunch of belts between them. Charlo just came off a, a good win against Tony Harrison. Now is the perfect time. I would have thought to put them in together, uh, um, you know, and let's see who's who's the top guy at 154. Because I think it's got to be one of those two at the moment. Um, my suspicion, however is that we'll actually see a pair of rematches instead. I, I, that we'll see Williams versus Rosario 2 and a rubber match between Charlo and Tony Harrison. And mm. you know what? What the hell? No problem <laughs> with any of them, right? right? And, and you know, put them on the same card. Winners to fight in the late fall. And um, wouldn't blame any of the boxes of the team's involved if that's the direction they want to go in. But equally, Charlo Rosario feels like that's the hot hand to go with right now and, and would, would do really well right now. Um, so who's going to be top at the end of the year? I, I guess my money would be on Charlo, but you kind of also figure that he and Harrison could fight 20 times and go 10 and 10 or 11 and 9 or something like that. They're they're that close. Um, and there's a lot of quality in that division right now. And next week, we might see Jarrett Hurd back to his best again. So an so, exciting division.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to all the names you mentioned, if there's sort of like a dark horse to be – in the mix for the top guy at the end of 2020. He's certainly not in the conversation just yet, but uh, with all these guys beating each other and uh, it not being clear who's number one, the door looks increasingly wide open for friend of the pod, Erickson Lubin. I I wouldn't be shocked to see him maybe in 2020 kind of complete his comeback and position himself at least in that conversation for number one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Good call. Um, So the co-main on that Fox card was less dramatic, still has some quality action. Chris Colbert, remaining undefeated uh securing some kind of alphabet belt at 130 pounds more significantly knocking down and overcoming the experienced just real corrales uh and by unanimous scores of 117 110 twice and 116 111 um eric how impressed were you with colbert and is it too soon for him to be facing the likes of leo santa cruz which apparently he wants to do
1: no, I, w- I wouldn't say it's too soon for that. Um, Colbert is obviously a real talent. Uh, Corrales isn't washed, uh, and isn't oh. that, he isn't that far removed from holding a major title. So this, this was a significant win and a clear win. Um, the criticism is that it wasn't a f- very fun win to watch most of the way. Uh, there was a fair bit of the fighters staring at each other, especially early on, and that led to some very, very uncharacteristic Philadelphia sports fan booing. Um, so uh, I was both impressed by Colbert and a bit disappointed, or, or at least I was left wanting. This, this was not mm. a coming out party, as it would have been if he'd fought more aggressively and knocked Corrales out. But He box smart. His hand speed is no joke. Uh, he can get away with going stretches without punching a lot because his speed is handcuffing the other guy enough to still win him the rounds. Um, And so this is the kind of fight where once a little time has passed and the details of the fight become fuzzy in our minds, we'll just look at a unanimous decision over Jezreel Corrales on his record and say, that was
0: a good fight. Exactly. That's a really good
1: win on his resume. Um, So, but yeah, I mean, I think he could step in with a top guy like Santa Cruz in his next fight and have a legit chance to win. But I also think he hasn't done enough to create clamor for that yet. Um, Colbert is 23 he should fight a few more Jezreel Corrales types first and see if he can't be maybe a little more spectacular the next time against a fighter on that level and and position himself a little better for a Santa Cruz. Okay. Uh, We already mentioned that we may have an early 2020 upset of the year contender. Uh, We may also have found ourselves a knockout of the year finalist this weekend (laughs) at Turning Stone Resort and Casino in Verona, New York, in a light heavyweight contest that was broadcast on ESPN. A later Alvarez knocked out Michael Seals with a right hand in the seventh round in what had to that point been a relatively tame affair. Kieran, give me your thoughts on that knockout. Was it a bolt out of the blue? And where does Alvarez rank for you in the congested 170? Five pound division.
0: Yeah, so it was sort of out of the blue and it sort of wasn't. Um, <clears throat> we actually had a little bit of a dress rehearsal of, of it uh, at the end of the fifth. Uh, Seals started to uncork a right hand. Alvarez stepped inside and fired a shorter one, and Seals. Legs stiffened and seal and he staggered backward um he was keeping his left hand low all through the fight, and you could tell that Alvarez was seeing that and was looking to try and target um uh, target him with right hands all night and ultimately he did i mean it was a perfect knockout that had seals i think probably out on his feet uh and then just crumpling down onto the canvas um but up until that point, yeah, the fight hadn't really caught caught light um seals took a little while to get going Alvarez was content to pump out the jab and look for an opening um you know, you kind of have to give props, don't you, to Alvarez. It's like he's never going to be an exciting fighter. He's never going to be the guy that fans clamor to watch. It's not like he does any one thing particularly well, but he does a whole bunch of stuff pretty well. And and he can punch. And you look at him now. He's now – he's earned respect. Look, he's got wins over Lucien Boutet, Jean Pascal, Isaac Chalember, Sergei Kovalev, you know, just the loss to Kovalev in the rematch. He's He's in that – he's probably at the head of that strong batch – that's maybe like level two, two and a half there in that division. You've got better Beterbiev at number one, Bivol probably at number two. Then what? It's hard to say on the back of their losses, but Kovalev and Vojtek probably there at three and four somewhere. Gilberto Ramirez now moving up to 175, so he's got to be up there. And then you've got the Alvarez's and the Pascals. You've got Joe Smith Jr. who's right back in the reckoning now. So he's sort of in there in that group that you wouldn't fancy them against a Beterbiev necessarily or a Bivol, but he's as worthy of an opportunity against them as, as a lot of these guys in the same way that we were saying that about Jean Pascal. Just by dint of being around and continuing to get good wins, they're worthy of a shot. So uh, it's a really, again, like 154. 75, a very interesting division. A bit different from 54 in that uh, there's a lot more veteran content yes. in there, isn't there? That's the big difference. There's a lot of guys who've just been around for a long time and are still there and still good. Whereas 54 is a lot more young guns. but uh, But very interesting in a different way. Yep. All right enough about this past weekend's action uh let's spin it forward a little bit to this coming weekend uh there's only one televised card on the schedule and it's on of course showtime woot woot on saturday (laughs) january 25th starting at 9 p.m eastern and 6 p.m pacific live from the barclays center in brooklyn new york a couple of intriguing undercard fights including a clash of two undefeated prospects and the return of a former champion trying to bounce back from his first defeat but we start with the main event. 12 rounds in the welterweights division. Philadelphia's Danny Swift-Garcia taking on Ukraine's Ivan Redkac. Uh This is Garcia's home away from home, Barclays. Uh, it's his eighth fight there, uh, dating back to the very first fight card ever held there, his rematch with Eric Morales in 2012. Um, but he did also suffer his only two losses in this building, uh, both very narrow decisions against Keith Thurman and Sean Porter. Uh, Garcia's hopefully going to be busier in 2020 than he was in 2019 when he fought just once. A seventh round KO of Adrian Granados, a veteran who is rarely an easy out. But to Garcia's credit, was an easy out on that night. Uh, now he's in against Red Redcatch. Um, importantly, Redcatch is a southpaw. And reading the tea leaves, that's probably no small factor, Eric, in why he got this fight.
1: Indeed. It, it's no secret that uh, Danny wants a big fight this year against one of the PBC welterweight stars he hasn't faced yet. Namely, Errol Spencer, Manny Pacquiao. And those guys are both southpaws. So, yeah, clearly the the intent in picking red catch was you want someone you expect to beat, someone you can stay busy against, collect a paycheck, ideally look good against, maybe score an impressive KO like Garcia did against Granados. But on top of that, get some rounds in against a southpaw. Get yourself that much more well-prepared for Spence or Pacquiao if you can secure one of those fights. Red catch really might be the perfect opponent uh he can punch but you're not too worried about that if you're part of team garcia because danny has never been knocked down despite his quality of opposition Uh, red catch has an action style he's a southpaw but not a real tricky southpaw Uh, and he's been dropped five times in four different fights and stopped a couple of times um and on top of that the timing is as good as it's going to be for making this fight because Redcatch is coming off the biggest win of his career, a sixth round KO of Devin Alexander that caused Ray Mancini to send <laughs> viewers scrambling for the volume button on their remotes. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that because Ray is a bad commentator. I just mean he screams like Sam Kinnison whenever a fight get, <laughs> fighter gets knocked down. Uh, this oh, was... <laughs> Sam
0: Kinnison is a boxing commentator. I never even thought about that before. Well,
1: it's pretty much Ray Mancini yeah. when, oh. when a guy gets knocked down. Yeah.
0: Oh, oh,
1: yeah, that's basically the Ray Mancini move. Um, In any case, um, some observers have criticized the choice of red catch as an opponent, saying he's too soft to touch. You've expressed positivity toward this matchup since it was signed. What do you see in red catch that maybe some people don't? So let me first of all acknowledge
0: but I understand why some quite a few people are down about on this matchup. Uh, Red Katch has fought the bulk of his career at 135 and uh, his first fight at 140, he was knocked out by John Molina Jr. He's only fought four times in total at 140 or above Garcia spent his entire career at or above 140. And for five or six years now, it's been at 147. Um, you know, as you said, look, this is a fight. That Danny Garcia should win uh, and should win without too much difficulty, but there's context here, right? That's that's it's the context in which I thought it was a perfectly fine opponent. Um, Redcatch was doing pretty well against Molina until he got hit with a thunderous right hand, from which he never fully recovered, and he's hardly the only molina opponent you know who that hasn't happened to um you know but i think for me the key thing as you mentioned danny garcia fought just once in 2019 he also hasn't put together amazingly back-to-back wins since 2016 um and he and like you said he's clearly lining up a massive opponent for later in the year like likely pacquiao or spence so if you have a career high payday waiting for you after a period of inactivity and after going two and two in your previous four fights, you're not going to fight the number two guy or number three guy in the division or even necessarily the number nine or number 10 guy. You're just not going to do it. Um, and Danny Garcia is hardly alone in this. Um, I, I think that, you know, some of the criticism that he's gotten here is partly it's not so much about Red Catch, It's about Garcia, who, for whatever reason, is just one of those guys that fans like to criticize. Um, and. You know, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think that some a lot of fans have never quite accepted him as an elite-level fighter, feeling that, you know, that left hook has bailed him out of fights sometimes. Um, he doesn't do anything flashy. He doesn't have scintillating skills. He just does a lot of things right. Um, and he has a good chin and a good punch. I think he gets criticism because of his father, um, yes. whose persona is in considerable contrast to his son's. Um, you know, and I still think... There's the, and we talked about this, I think a few weeks ago. Um, there's the Rod Salka issue. He's never shaken that. Um, and that is partly the result of certain boxing influences, shall we say, never shutting up about it. Um, it was a horrible matchup, and Salka could have gotten badly hurt. But that shouldn't define Danny Garcia in the same way that Joey Gamash shouldn't and doesn't define Arturo Gatti. Um, you know, but I think that's because even though Garcia has consistently fought really good opposition, every time he fights a soft A soft opponent or slightly softer opponent the ghost of rod salka um (laughs) sort of comes up a little bit um and look as he said red catch looked better last time out against devin alexander than he has before and that was at the higher weight than he's ever been at before um but despite that garcia absolutely should win this i think look is it um an even matchup no not really is it an exciting mouth-watering matchup no but Is it a perfectly fine matchup, and you've really just laid out the reasons for it already, a perfectly fine matchup against a perfectly fine caliber of opponent, given what's at stake, given where Danny's career has been over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think so. I I think it's about as good an opponent as his people should be putting him in with right now on the basis of the last couple of years and given what's ahead of him. And so that's why I'm kind of positive about it. It's contextually. A decent opponent
1: yeah that, that's well said and there is definitely something a little bit irrational about the danny garcia hate i, I feel like a lot of people who are anti danny garcia if you ask them why they wouldn't even really be able to tell you they just mm. they just like rooting against the guy and complaining about the guy for reasons that are not always so easy to pinpoint uh and i think you're right
0: that the the, the ghost of rod Salko <laughs> won't quite go away yeah Yeah. Um, In the co-feature, one of the most exciting warriors in boxing, uh, Jarrett Hurd, we already talked about, uh, returns after losing to J-Rock Williams in one of the best fights of 2019. Uh, Surprisingly, uh, he's not moving up to middleweight, as many of us figured he would do. Uh, He's staying at 154, although this fight has a contract weight of 156. He meets Francisco Santana. Uh, a career welterweight with an unspectacular record of 25-7. and 7, But um, that's one of those records that might be a little bit deceptive. Uh, he faced J-Rock Williams when J-Rock was just 6-0, Jamel Charlo when Charlie was 15-0, Saddam Ali when Ali was 21-0, and, and also Jose Benavides Jr., Felix Diaz, and on and on and on. Um, the story here, though, is heard, uh, who, on the back of the first loss of his career, has cut his famous orange hair, no longer lives with his parents um he chose not to exercise his rematch clause to face julian williams again last year uh, and is now rebuilding at age 29 eric what kind of test does santana pose in this 10 rounder what does it tell us about hurd if this is another grueling fight in which he falls behind early
1: well i think those are two separate things if he falls behind early uh loses maybe two of the first three or four rounds that's just a case of, hey, same old Jared Hurd. He Herd's needs to few rounds to yeah. warm up. Right, yeah. herd going to Hurd. Um, if the fight gets grueling beyond that, if he doesn't win decisively or is getting hit a ton, then it's time to start wondering if Hurd is one of those fighters with a very short prime who's seeing it mm. wind down already. Um, because Santana, uh, though a really solid veteran, should not on paper prove competitive with Hurd. Hurd's in a really interesting spot right now. Uh, The guy who upset him, J-Rock Williams, just got upset himself. And Hurd looks like a questionable decision now not to take that rematch. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where Hurd fits in, except that you know he's going to make fun fights with anyone uh, at 154 or 160. Um, And and by the way, uh, interesting how we have two Swifts on the same card uh danny swift garcia and swift jared hurd Uh, maybe barclays can get taylor swift to do the national anthem she's not in demand at all that should be easy enough um but i'm thinking with both swifts heavy favorites to win this should be a competition whoever is more swift whoever wins more quickly (laughs) gets to keep the nickname swift and loser gives it up those are those are real stakes right there Uh, and you know little side prop bets are are always fun uh Everything short of Titans coach Mike Vrabel vowing to cut off his penis if the Titans would win the Super Bowl, that was maybe a little far, uh, but short of that, you know, putting your nickname on the line, that's that's just good marketing and salesmanship right
0: there. Right, there you go. <laughs> uh,
1: so we have clear A-sides in both the main event and the co-feature, uh, but the opening bout is much closer to a toss-up on paper, and it's a meeting of Philly fighters, sort of. Uh, one is from West Philadelphia, born and raised, <laughs> and the other is from Ukraine, but lives in in Philly. Uh, We have Stephen Fulton, 17-0, 8 KOs against a familiar face to Showbox fans, Arnold Hagai, 16-0-1, 10 KOs, meeting in a 12-rounder at 122 pounds, only the second scheduled 12-rounder for Fulton and the first for Hagai. This bout offers a stark contrast in styles as Hag- Hagai is an aggressive pressure fighter and Fulton is more of a slick boxer. And Haggai comes into this fight with a new trainer, a familiar face, Joe Goosen. Uh, one of Hagai's fights on Showbox was an eight round decision over Jorge Diaz. I'm curious. Did his occasional struggles in that fight suggest he has trouble with movers and that Fulton might be a bad style matchup for a guy?
0: Yeah, possibly. Uh, and so, of course, the last time we saw a guy on, on Showbox was against Vladimir Tikhonov in August, and he won an eight-round unanimous decision. I thought he looked quite good. But he isn't the kind of boxer who will necessarily use angles and footwork to get his opponent in front of him. You know, you'll often see the best boxers will do that. We'll use the footwork or feints or we'll just constantly flick out a jab, even if it doesn't land, just to keep their opponent honest or a little bit to move them into position. But I was watching a bit of Hagai and... He's this kind of guy who sort of tends to wait a little bit until his opponent moves around until he's right in the right spot where he wants him. And then he's going to try and keep him there um, with stabbing shots and and likes to come forward that way and gradually close the range. And the problem with doing that is that Stephen Fulton can be super elusive. He's not necessarily like a Pernell Whitaker or Nicolino Lache type. He, He will stand in front of you. But it's difficult to hit him when he does that because he seems like he's very good at noticing when a, his opponent has a tell, when he's tensing or getting ready to, to throw a punch, because he's very good at sliding back out of range again, um, just as his opponent is about to do that. And I have a suspicion... Um, that that might actually indeed, as you say, prove to be a little bit of a nightmare for Hagai because he, unless Joe's done something to him and, and has changed him a little bit, I think that could be a very frustrating, I, could, I can see this being a situation where Hagai is getting ready and locked to load and just as he goes to load, Fulton's moving out the way and he's probably hitting him on the counter. So mm. it, it could be a difficult night for Hagai, I agree. Yeah. All right, let's get back to the main event and specifically to one of the participants in it. We are joined now by a guest who needs no introduction, and whose record speaks for itself. World titles at 140 and 147 pounds. Victories over the like of Amir Khan, Lucas Matisse, Lamont Peterson, Eric Morales, and our own Paulie Malignaggi, among many others. Uh, we see him next in action against Ivan Redcatch on Saturday, January 25th, on Showtime Championship Boxing. Danny Swift-Garcia, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast.
2: How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me.
0: We're
1: doing well. Thanks so much for coming on, Danny. Um, So you've been calling out Manny Pacquiao. You've been calling out Errol Spence. But on January 25th, you're fighting Ivan Redcatch. This is obviously not your dream opponent. So what are your goals in this fight? Is this one of those fights where it's not enough just to win? You actually have to impress and entertain?
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm I'm taking this fight like it's a world title fight. You know, because every fight that I step in the ring is a big fight. So... After going there, I, I, I'm taking him really serious. You know, I've done everything i supposed to do in camp. You know, I'm headed to the gym right now for some more work in. But, yeah, definitely. So I, I'm taking this fight like it's, it's a big fight, and it is a big fight, and I have to go in there and, and dominate him.
1: Is it, is it even not just dominate, but is a knockout really on your mind? I know every fighter always says, you know, if the knockout comes, it comes. They're not going to push for it. But this is a guy who's been stopped a couple of times. Do you, do you feel like you really need the knockout here?
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, without adding no pressure on me, I'm going to go in there and do what I got to do. And I feel like once I once I get in my groove and get my rhythm and start figuring him out, I should be able to um, knock him out. OK. All
0: right. So he's won three straight and he's coming off what's probably the, the most significant win of his career, a knockout of Devin Alexander. Um, what do you see as his strengths? What are the attributes of his that you're going to have to be most aware of in the ring?
2: You know, he's a southpaw. He's hungry. Anytime you fight somebody who's hungry, you got to go in the A game because, you know, he has everything to gain. I don't. So I have to go in there and make sure that I go in there and set the tempo and um, make him fight my fight. And that's what I plan on doing.
1: Before this fight was signed, going back a a little bit, you seemed on track uh, for a fight with Errol Spence before his car accident. Uh, Do you have any sense of whether that fight can still happen this year? Yeah, I believe so.
2: I believe, um, I heard he's doing well. I heard he's doing good. I heard he's recovered. And, um, you know, first I got to get past red catch. And then um, once, once everything's done, then, you know, send me the contract. It's that simple.
1: <laughs> right. And and you know, Spence is talking about uh making his return sometime in like June, somewhere around there. Do you believe there's any chance he'll take an opponent as good as you in his first fight back in the spring, or you think you
2: might have to wait a little longer than that? You know, I really don't know. Only he knows that. Um I can't only he knows what he you know, he's really dealing with how healthy he is, how healthy he's not. Um so but you know, there's plenty of fights out there to be made, and, and we got to get past uh, Red Cash first, and then we can could, we could talk about whoever.
0: Yeah, look, as you mentioned, there are a lot of great fights at welterweight. It's a great time to be in, in your position in the welterweight division right now. Um, a lot of you guys have been fighting each other. The One guy who's sort of been left out is Terrence Crawford. Uh, and Do you feel like the responsibility lies on Terrence and on Bob Arum to make some concessions in order to, to fight one of you guys on the PBC side of the street?
2: You know, I believe in boxing. Any fight can be made. You know, it's just all about making it. So, um, why he hasn't fought none of us, I don't know. But um, I believe that if they really want to fight, and it can be made. It's, I think mean, it's that simple. To mm. be honest, it just has to make sense. You
0: know, a lot of people, you know, put Crawford right up there as one of the top pound for pound guys. Is that something that you agree with?
2: You know, he is a three division. Um, he is a three division champion um you know he's been boxing for a long time. I know him since the amateurs and um you know he he he's done good he's done he's done good in his career he just uh he just hasn't fought you know the fight that people want him to fight mm.
1: Um, so you're actually the, the first, Danny, in a series of Philly fighters that we're planning to interview over the next few weeks, uh, since there seems to be a revival of, of Philly boxing, uh, and we have you, Boots Ennis, J-Rock Williams, Stephen Fulton, and Tevin Farmer all fighting in the month of January, not to mention a Showtime card in Reading, Pennsylvania on February 8th. What does the term Philly fighter mean to you, and is it more about a fighting style or an attitude?
2: You know, a Philly fighter, I feel like, you know, Philly's one of the old-school towns of boxing where they actually teach fighters how to fight with their hands up. <laughs> so I just feel like, you know, we... um, Philly's a real old-school boxing town, so anytime I think about a Philly fighter, I think of the the old-school discipline, you know, nothing too flashy, but, you know, we, we're tough, and we, we're the best fundamentals in boxing, and, I, and, you know, we never give up, and I think that's what a Philly fighter is.
1: Now the, the last time that you actually fought in Philly was 2016. Any chance of a of a hometown fight soon? Is that something you'd like to do?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted this fight to be in Philly, but you know, um, you know, I have a big fan base in Brooklyn.
0: Mm. Do you have any particular Philly fighters you looked up to in the gyms when you were coming up?
2: Definitely. Um, I used to love Bernard Hopkins. You know, he was mm. one of my Bernard Hopkins was one of my favorite fighters, and there was a, there was a lot of fighters in Philly I looked up to, like. Um, you know, I used to go to, you know, Rock and Tiger, um, Carl Dargan, um, you know, those guys are in 2004 Olympics class. Mm-hmm. So I was younger than those guys. I used to look up to those guys. I used to look up um, to a lot of guys, you know, and then we knew of crop Rose, a lot of fighters just started doing good and training hard. So, but definitely I always looked up to a lot of Philadelphia fighters. Um, it's just a, a great boxing town.
0: Yeah. And of course it's coming to the stage now where... You're uh, in a, into that veteran territory yourself. So are you finding now yeah, that you've exactly. got a lot of up-and-comers are looking at you in that same kind of way and looking at you to be a mentor?
2: Exactly. So yeah, definitely, I would say that I would say that the culture in boxing changed a lot in Philadelphia. You know, mm-hmm. for me being the first Latino boxing champion, I remember when I was young, it was only a few of us. Now it's a uh, thousand was in Danny Garcias out there in the gym. So <laughs> I would definitely say I shift the culture in boxing in Philadelphia. In a big way. Mm. You
1: you mentioned as the the first name that that you dropped there among your Philly boxing heroes, Bernard Hopkins. He's certainly one of the all-time greats of Philly boxing or any boxing, really. And and he's going into the Hall of Fame this year. Um, You've had a very good pro career, 35 wins so far, only two losses, both by close decision. What's it going to take for Danny Garcia to be a Hall of Famer like Bernard Hopkins is?
2: You know, I just got to keep fighting I gotta keep fighting, you know, keep looking good. I gotta keep fighting the best and, and, and women, and I think uh, I think that that'll land me in the Hall of Fame.
1: Do, do you feel like like you're you're close right now? Like maybe just like one more signature win at at welterweight kind of yeah. might be
2: all you need. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I feel like if you look at even at one fifty four, you know, mm-hmm. I could easily move up to one fifty four one day and win another world title and make me a three division world champion, but you know, if you look at the last 10 years, um, all the work that I put in, selling out the Barclays Center, winning three world titles, two different divisions, fighting 13 world champions, I, I mean, you really can't, there's not really a lot of fighters who've done that in the last 10 years. You know, I created my own hype. I went in there <laughs> as the underdog and beat the champions and took their belts. Yeah. Nobody nobody thought I was going to do this. So I earned, You know, I earned everything I've done in the boxing world. Yeah.
0: Do do I'm, I'm curious as a final question when you look back already at what you what you've got on your resume Do you look at any one or two or three fights? Do they really stand out to you as you thinking yeah Those were my really best wins or those were the fights that really made me
2: Yeah, I mean, I had some great wins, you know, the big upset against Amir Khan. Nobody thought I was gonna win Then I beat Latife. and then I had some good wins like Lamar Peterson. He was a world champ You know, he's a IBF world champion when I fought him um that, you know, the fight with Jeremy, it was a close fight. You know, the fights with Porter, that was a close fight. But, you know, when you fight the best, you know, those fights, could have. I thought I did enough. But, you know, you have to fight the best to be the best. And I've proven that I fought the best, and I beat the best, and I competed with the best. And, and I'm still here. So that's what that's what being a true champ is all about, is fighting the best.
1: Yeah, yeah. the 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 Matisse one is the one that I think stands yeah. out most to me when I look back on your career. as, like I'll, I'll be, you know, up front and admit I, I was not predicting a Danny Garcia victory that night. And I think you you turned a lot of heads with the way you you fought against Lucas Matisse.
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, those are the type of fights I wake up for. I mean, mm-hmm. um, when people say Danny Garcia is the favorite, it don't even feel right to me. I'm so used to being the underdog. That's the way my mentality is. So I knew I knew I could beat him. When I watched his fight against, um, I forgot his name, but I, I just watched that, but he stopped the guy, and I, I just kept watching that fight, and I was like, this guy can't beat mm. and right then I knew that I was the better fighter. Mm.
0: Hey, man, look, we, uh, we do understand with fight night approaching, you've got a lot of demands on your time, you've got a lot of work to do, so we really appreciate you putting some of that time aside uh, uh, for us today. Uh, good luck in the next stage against Ivan Redcatch, and thank you, Danny Garcia, for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks very much,
2: Chan. Thanks, Danny.
0: All right. Thank you very much indeed there for uh, to Danny Swift-Garcia for joining us. Um, and now that he's no longer on the line, we can go to our predictions. Uh, although uh, I suspect actually there's nothing bad in terms of this fight that either of us were going to say. I don't think either of us are going to be picking against him, but um, we will start with this fight. Eric, you are currently leading our competition 6-4. It is your turn to pick first with Garcia Redcatch. Uh,
1: Yeah, if if by chance uh, Danny uh, is still listening to the podcast, I know he's not on the line right now, but if you're still listening, Danny, don't worry. I got your back here. I'm definitely picking Garcia, Um, and I think he stops Redcatch. Uh, If John Molina could and Dejan Mm Slatichinin could, uh, Garcia, I believe, will but Danny rarely gets it done early. His only quick yep. KO in the last seven years or so was uh, that famous fight we've talked about, the Rod Salka fight. Um, usually it takes him longer. So I'm going to say in a fun but one-sided fight, Garcia KO 7, his second straight seventh round knockout win. What do you say?
0: Uh, very close to the, to the same. Uh, exactly. He's going to take a little bit of time. You know, Red Catch does have that sort of slightly awkward Style, um, but he does leave himself awfully open, and and Garcia is going to start hitting him, and and, uh, progressively cleaner. I think he gets it done a little bit sooner. I'm going to say, round six. Right. Um, in the co-main, uh, Jarrett Heard, Francisco Santana. Little surprised to see. You know, we talked about this already. That Heard is electing to stay at 154. This is one of those predictions that I wish we could make after the weigh-in, when we get a sense of of, of how he looks a little bit. Um, you know, Santana, as we said, doesn't have a great record, but isn't as bad. You know, as it seems, given the level of competition, is he good enough to get a win against Herd? I don't think so, Santana. Is he good enough to last the distance against Hurd? I'm not so sure. I was very tempted to go with the decision win rather than the KO for Shishkin over Sierra last week and ultimately didn't have enough confidence in myself to do so. Mm -hmm. I'm sorely tempted to go for a mild upset and suggest Santana lasts the distance. But I don't think so. I thought Herd's last points win, apart from Erislandy Lara, was in a six-rounder in 2014. I, I think Herd's going to have to work a bit. He will start a little bit slow again, but he gets a win. Heard TKO, eight.
1: All right. Um, I always talk about how size is overrated, uh, but this is a fight where I think size matters, where, where Herd is a lot bigger than Santana. And, you know, whereas Santana has proven hard to knock out against welterweights, I think Hurd should be able to hurt him. Uh, I fully expect the standard slow start for Hurd, and Santana knows what he's doing in there. He will present a few puzzles for Hurd to solve. But once Hurd gets on track, he'll do damage. I'm saying, of course, Hurd KO8, because we have of to course. agree completely every now and again, at least. Uh, so, And that would mean, uh, if my predictions are both correct, uh, that would mean that uh, Garcia gets to keep the Swift nickname, and Hurd uh, has to give it up. Mm-hmm. Um, as for the opener, Fulton versus Hagai, I think this is a really competitive piece of matchmaking. I think these are two very evenly matched prospects. but uh, And you kind of hinted at this in your analysis uh, before making your prediction that's coming up next. I think the styles really favor Fulton. The slick boxer, as long as he's slick enough and has a little yeah. bit of pop to keep the other guy honest, the slick boxer tends to get the better of the one-dimensional pressure fighter most of the time, and, and that's how I see this playing out. Uh, but it could be close. There could certainly be some tough rounds to score. Um, Philly needs a win, though, after what happened to J-Rock. Uh, and I know a guy lives in Philly, but Fulton is more Philly. Uh, so I'm going Stephen Fulton by close unanimous decision.
0: Yeah, I'm also going Fulton by unanimous decision. Uh, I think it could be one of those things where, you know, he settles down quick, more quickly. He sort of gets into the groove, maybe rattles off quite a few rounds, sort of, you know, from three to seven, something like that. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if Hagai does start to close the gap and, and, and win a couple of the last uh, rounds just to close it up on the scorecards. But I think it'll be too late, uh, Fulton, by unanimous decision.
1: Okay. And then the quick note here that the DraftKings Showtime Boxing Pick'em is back if you go to DraftKings.com slash Showtime. Right now, you'll see that this fight card is up on the site. All three fights, ready to pick. It's free to enter. You just need a DraftKings account, and you can play for your share of $5,000 and a Showtime Boxing swag bag for every Showtime Championship Boxing card. That's the one change this year. Championship Boxing only. No Showbox or Showtime Boxing Special Edition. Uh, But there is still a full year leaderboard, and the winner at the end of 2020 wins the grand prize, a trip to every 2021 Showtime championship boxing event travel tickets and hospitality included so just log on and pick the winner and method of victory for all three of saturday's fights best of luck to all and let's finish with the news from around the boxing world over the past week uh but first a word on what we won't be talking about pacquiao mcgregor no thanks. Hard <laughs> pass for now. If the fight actually gets signed, then it becomes newsworthy and we'll talk about it. But as long as it's in the rumor stage, don't care. It's not news. Uh, we'll also skip Tyson Fury claiming that he's <laughs> buffing his halfie, uh seven times a day in preparation for the Worst Wilder time. rematch. Uh, I'm not so sure that attention-seeking sales technique is going to get this fight any closer to Joe Tessitore's prediction of it setting the all-time pay-per-view record. But what do I know? Uh, you yeah. do you, Tyson. Yeah. Uh, but Which is apparently you know, what he's doing. <laughs> (laughs) Yes. Yes, Yeah, I don't need to tell him that. Uh, Now, here is a news item that I'd say is worth a quick comment. The Boxing Writers Association of America announced its award winners on Friday. We don't need to list them all, but they're in agreement with the two of us on fighter of the year, Canelo Alvarez, and fighter of the decade, Floyd Mayweather. Any other winners catch your eye, Kieran?
0: um they also agreed with us that the fight of the year was not in no way against Nonito need um so good call there um i was actually surprised to see that canelo was the first mexican to win the award since julio cesar chavez in 1987 which is kind of amazing really mm, um yeah. yes kids the name julio cesar chavez used to be synonymous with great fighting <laughs> ask your parents um do also want to know our good friend, Bob Canobio winning the long and meritorious service award and Norm Fraunheim and Tim Smith showing the good guy award uh, Two gents who are absolutely the very definition of that phrase. So very happy for them both. Um, in other news, uh, Yuri Orkis Gamboa's Achilles tear has been confirmed. He toughed out almost the entire fight with Javante Davis on Showtime in December with that injury. He suffered in round two. Um, does that, a that shows that Gamboa is an incredibly tough person. Um, yeah. Does it? But does Javante lose a few more points uh, now that that diagnosis is in? Eh,
1: maybe a fraction of a point. Uh, but you know, we assumed this was the case after the fight. Uh, this is what we what Gamboa was telling us was that he had some kind of Achilles injury. Uh, mm-hmm. he, but he masked it so well during the fight. Yeah. You know, we knew he was hurt. Something had happened with his shoe, or something was bothering him. But it wasn't affecting his mobility. So. To me, this is more confirmation that Gamboa is a million times tougher than a normal human and not so much an indictment of Davis, who didn't have his finest night in the ring. But Gamboa looked pretty much like Gamboa in there, and Davis did eventually score, knockdowns, and force the stoppage. So, nah, doesn't take away from him too much. Uh, Let's get to some newly announced fights. First, Fox has announced a March 7th card that will apparently be all heavyweights. Uh, Some of them don't have opponents yet, but the main event is set. Adam Kaunatsky against Robert Hellenius. Uh, Kieran, what emoji
0: do you assign to that main event? Shrug? Poop? Smiley face? Something else? I like Adam Kanatki. Um, I'm quite happy to watch him again. So I guess that's a smiley face. Uh, uh, against Hellenius, it's that blank kind of expressionless emoji. It's the <laughs> okay. meh emoji. Um, uh, as I think we've discussed before, there was a period many years ago when I thought actually Robert Hellenius had an outside chance of being somebody. Um, and it turns out he did. It's just that that somebody was Robert Hellenius. Um, <laughs> you know, he'll provide some kind of stiff opposition. Um, but, you know, I, he, he won't beat Kanatki, I suspect. Uh, but I, I'll kind of enjoy watching actually work away on him so yeah smiley face and meh face there um okay. however big grin emoji for another fight that was announced this last week, uh, as the co-main of the Mikey Garcia-Jesse Vargas bout from Frisco, Texas, onto Zone on February 29th. Calia from the UK defending his 115-pound belt against Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez. And I love this fight. Uh, two, three years ago, this would have been a classic Chocolatito eating up another very good uh, world-level opponent kind of situation. But now Chocolatito, obviously, is not he, not what he was. But from what we've seen of him in his last couple of fights, he ain't shot. Um, his wars have obviously taken their toll and the pack has caught up to him. And so now this is to me, this is a legitimately very, very good world title fight. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing this. What about you?
1: Yeah, this, this is a good put up or shut up for Chocolatito. You know, yeah. Either he can be competitive with Yafai and maybe beat Yafai and uh, prove that he's still a factor at 115 pounds at age 32. Or he can't be competitive with him and it's time to think about hanging it up either way. This is a fight that should give us answers and could be a fun hang while, while we're getting those answers. You know, unless Chocolatito is washed and gets beaten right. up again like he did in the cat rematch, then uh, then it isn't such a fun hang if we have to see that again.
0: Right. Indeed. All right. That will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our thanks again to Danny Garcia for taking time out just days before his fight with Ivan Redcatch to talk to us. We will be back next week to review Garcia vs. Redcatch and to preview another Showbox card headlined by Ruben Villa in what will be the fourth of six consecutive weekends with live boxing on Showtime. How about that? And we will be joined by one, perhaps two guests, one of whom may just fit our Philly fighters. We'll see. Until then, thank you for listening.